HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. I am without my new co-host, Charlie Comer, today. Stay tuned. She's got some great shows lined up for you for later this January and February. But today, uh, it's a little bit of a rainy day here in Bushwick, and we are in the studio with a guest who's visiting um, from Vermont, Ben Mason of the Tamarack Vermont Sheep Farm. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's always such a treat to have farmers in the studio. Um, so you came down today because you work with our founding organization, Heritage Foods USA, to drop off a bunch of lamb. That's right. Yep. I delivered 34 lambs to Heritage Foods just a few minutes before I came in here. We had to like make it an efficient journey. That's <laughs> You're right. like, after this, I have my segment on CBS and then I'm going out for a meal. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think you mentioned, um, it, it, like I said, it's a little like rainy here, but uh, up in Vermont, I guess they're projecting uh, some pretty icy conditions. Yeah. Somewhere in between here and Vermont, there'll be freezing rain. So I'll probably try to take off pretty soon. Pretty soon. Yep. Um, so... Ben, you are kind of the steward of your your family's uh, flock of sheep. You raise a couple of rare breeds, uh, the Tunis and the Dorset Horn. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those breeds and how you came back to the farm. But I want to start a little bit further back because I was really intrigued to learn that you spent some time um, as a smoke jumper with the Forestry Service. Yeah, I did. Yep. Yeah. So for people that don't know, Smoke jumpers are wildland firefighters that get delivered to fires with planes and <clears throat> and parachutes. And I did that for seven summers. <clears throat> Excuse uh, me. 
So how does someone like voluntarily decide they're going to like jump out of a plane into a fire? It's funny. Once you get, <laughs> once you get used to having a parachute, you'd much rather jump out of the plane and use the parachute than land on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a, I had a girlfriend of mine from um, my childhood spent a couple like two summers doing fire jumping, and that's where she like met her husband, and like such an inch. So, and why is it only s- summers? Is that just because that's like the fire season? Yeah. So the western forest is designed to burn. The ecology of the forest is such that fire is really needed to cycle nutrients and to allow the trees to regenerate. So whereas in the eastern forest there there isn't a, a natural fire cycle, in the west there is. And it varies depending on the tree type as to how often the forest is designed to burn. But anywhere from New Mexico up to Alaska and all along through the Rocky Mountains, um, there'll be fires and they start sort of in March or April, often in the south. And then they pop up in different places throughout the summer. So fire season is generally like March or April through October, depending on the summer. And so when you jump in, like, what are you doing? Yeah, so you you jump... um, People always ask me, why would you jump into the fire? Of course, you don't jump into the fire if you can help <laughs> it. But you do, you do try to jump near the fire. And I think probably the first thing to understand is that the smoke jumpers are a special um, resource that's used only in situations that it makes sense to use them. So if there's a fire where someone can drive to the fire or or land a helicopter near the fire, they'll use different types of firefighters. Smoke jumpers are just used for wilderness areas where they can't get people in quickly to put the fire out. And the idea is that you're detecting fires really early on before um, they become large, and you're trying to put them out before they get large. So if the jumpers do their job, nobody even really knows they were there. And the way you fight a fire like that in a wilderness area without the normal resources that you would expect a firefighter to have, such as water and pumps and, and those types of tools, is to essentially deprive the fire of fuel. So we might jump a fire that's not much bigger than this room, and because we're there within an hour of when the lightning struck the tree to start it, we can dig around it with hand tools and starve the fire of fuel, and then we work through bit by bit extinguishing that fire and mixing it with the cold soil until we can go through on our hands and knees and make sure everything is out. Now, that's a perfect scenario. Sometimes you might jump a couple fires in a day if they're little fires and everything goes well, but there are plenty of fires that jumpers get onto and they just blow up and get out of control. And those are the fires you hear about in the news, the ones that the jumpers weren't uh, assigned to or were assigned to and just didn't catch. And there are only about about 300 jumpers in the whole system, so they try to use them, hold them in reserve and use them really selectively, and they're all stationed at airports where you you can get on the plane within five minutes and you're gone. Wow, so you're kind of just like chilling... Uh, chilling at the base and then everyone's like all right let's go yeah <laughs> you know like kind of like funny scenarios with like the you know pot of stew on the stove or whatnot um yeah. so what were you doing in the off season uh let's see it depended on the year but for several of those years i was getting a master's degree in forestry um a couple of winters i just strictly trained because i was entering moving from the job that you sort of do before you start to smoke jump which is called hot shotting moving from that to smoke jumping and the physical training requirements for smoke jumping are fairly high so a couple of winters i just trained and then uh, the rest of the time i was i was working on a master's degree so i have it's forestry is something i'm just starting to learn a little bit about and um, I think for a lot of people like myself, when you think about forestry, maybe you have some experience going to a state park as a kid and there's like people who check you in and people check out your campsite. And I get the vague idea that folks are kind of out and about kind of 
keeping an eye on things and like maintaining trails, but I know there's a lot more to it than that. Can you kind of give us a little bit of like the lay of the land? Like what are the types of work that someone with that degree would pursue traditionally? Yeah, forestry is a pretty broad field, and it could it could run the gamut all the way from someone like a park ranger, the type of people that you're describing that interact with the public in a park and help to make sure that people are lighting safe fires and doing that type of stuff, all the way to people that manage um, large tracts of forest land in remote areas for the production of timber. So there's a real, and in between, there are a lot of different jobs all along the way. In Vermont, much of the landscape is privately owned by small private landowners that own anywhere from, say, 30 to 500 acres of land. And so a lot of foresters in Vermont are working for those people who are just uh, regular folks like any of us. They just happen to own some land. And, of course, in Vermont, land is not as expensive as it is in more developed areas. So a forester might come in and consult with them about how to manage their forest. They would evaluate, do an inventory determine what species of trees are growing there, look at the soils, look at the wildlife habitat, work with the landowner to figure out what the landowner's objectives and priorities are for the property, and then help them to implement that. So some landowners might be very interested in generating a little bit of income from selling timber. Some of them might be more interested in wildlife habitat. Some people are really interested in the water resources on their property, their their wetlands, their vernal pools where amphibians breed and, and streams where, you know, trout might might use what's a vernal pool okay yeah great question vernal pool is a it's a depression um in the soil that seasonally fills with water that allows frogs and salamanders to reproduce okay and then it's not connected to because it's not connected to a stream um the fish that would be predators of those eggs can't access it so it's it's essentially a safe place for reproduction for amphibians huh i remember like when i was up at flying pigs farm um that Jen, uh, one of the people who owned the property, would talk about the the trees on their land as um, the college fund for their two kids, Jane and Charlie. Like right. we're gonna plant, th- you know, we have these like trees, and we're gonna like we have them evaluated, and we're gonna harvest them when it's time to like pay the tuition bill. Yeah, yep, and that's a very common scenario. Sort of looking at the at the um, the forest resource as uh, another another form of retirement or as a as a special fund for a special purpose. So how old are you like during this? I'm, I'm guessing like mid twenties. Yeah. I think I started firefighting when I was, uh, 25 or 26 and, uh, did it through my early thirties. So how did you end up back in Vermont on a sheep farm? Uh, yeah, well, I grew up in Vermont and I, I live not far from where I grew up and I always knew I lived a few different places and worked out west and always knew that I would come back. I just love Vermont and I wanted to be near my parents in case they needed me later in life. And I wanted to, if I had kids, I wanted them to be able to know their grandparents well. So it was always a priority of mine to come home. Um, Forestry seemed like it was a good way to do that. Uh, Some local friends had a forestry business and needed a little bit of additional help. So I started on the master's degree while I was smoke jumping. And once I completed that, settled back down and around the same time i've always had a strong interest in farming i grew up on a small organic diversified homestead and my mom is an herbalist and my parents produce uh, maple syrup and have an apple cider press and so i that sort of stuff is just in in my blood i think it's in my background and it always interested me and i was looking for something to do that was agricultural i thought maybe i would develop a small beef operation and i got a couple of beef cows and around 
the same time that I did that, my, my mom's father, my grandfather, Herb Liddell, was at the stage and age where he was, he was getting close to passing away. And I went to visit him once with my mother, and he and I had a conversation in which it became really clear that the, the sheep that were part of his farm throughout his whole life and that had started the generation before were really important to him. And uh, in talking with my uncle, who manages my mom's family's dairy farm, it was clear that the sheep were not something he was that interested in, and he was going to sell them when my grandfather passed. And as it turned out, my grandfather passed about a week later, and so I had to make a quick decision, and I bought what was left of the of the flock from my uncle um, and got started that way. And I feel like that's kind of usually how it goes with livestock. People tend to um, identify or not with different types of animals. They're like, I'm a beef person, I'm a goat, you know, it's like some, some folks do like a bit of everything, but there seems to be like almost like a personality match or physical match, or I don't know, like, um, has that like borne out for you? Like, are you like, yep, I'm a sheep guy. Or are you like, no, this is just like the way my life went. So this is like what I'm doing. Yeah. I think with me, it's more the latter. Um, I, I, I'm interested in all types of animals and the sheep were something that were going to be lost if I didn't do something. And so I jumped in with the idea that I would just maintain what we had, and I never anticipated growing it in the way that we have. Um, but, yeah, I like I like cows just as much as I like sheep. <laughs> no discrimination here. No. no. <laughs> um, and so this flock, um, you know, it, when, one of the things I think that's, like, a little hard to – um, I don't know, to kind of wrap your head around when you're thinking about uh, genetics of animals and, like, how how that works. Like, why is it important to um, maintain a flock? Like, how do you decide to grow a flock? Like, what are some of the kind of uh, standard practices for that? So you were starting out with the Tunis and the Dorset. Were there other breeds on the farm as well? No. So my great-grandfather in the 1920s had started with Tunis, and he just he started with two lambs and grew his flock from there. His name was Eddie and his wife's name was Neely. And they they were focused on the, the Tunis as a sheep breed, which they kept alongside the dairy cows. And the dairy cows have always been the financial driver of their farm. And then my grandfather, when he was ready for a 4-H project, started with the Dorset Horn. And so the, then the two breeds were managed. We always maintained the Tunis because they had been his father's. And so the two breeds were managed side by side, but both kept um, most of them, both both breeds kept pure, so they had rams of each breed, and they had ewe flocks of each breed, and they would, you know, they could mix them as we do now. They mix them when they're not during breeding season, and in during breeding season, they get divided out and and bred by by the breed. By the breed. So I think sheep are, are so interesting because there's um, potential for meat, there's potential for fiber, and there's potential for milk. So what are like the Tunis and Dorset, like what are they known for? Well, like a lot of heritage breeds, they're multi-purpose animals. So they, they date from the time before there was as much specialization in agricultural breeds as there is now. So they're, they're good at all of those different um, requirements, or they can produce in all three of those different categories, but they're not the best at at uh, any one. So there are, there are better wool breeds and better milk breeds and better meat breeds out there, but they're a nice mix of the three. Um, the They come from, you know, very different uh, backgrounds with the Tunis being a mix of sort of unknown early American 
sheep that were in existence on the East Coast and some African genetics that were introduced. And then the Dorset being from the south of England, you know, the sort of rolling green hills. So they're, they come from very different parts of the world, um, but they actually work together relatively well in our operation. And how can you tell them apart? Like if I'm looking out into your field, can I like spot them easily? Yeah, so if you were at a distance, it might be a little bit of a challenge. The Tunis has more of a creamy fleece, and the dorset's a little whiter, so you might be able to pick them out right away. But as soon as you get a little closer, it would be really easy because the Tunis are a polled breed, so they don't have horns, and they have a cinnamon red-colored face. They're the only breed to have a red, reddish face. And the dorset horn have a pure white face, and the females have horns, one of the few sheep breeds where the females and the males both have horns. Hmm. I wonder why. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think it was bred out of a lot of breeds. Yeah. Um, over time, for example, polled Dorset is one of the most common breeds worldwide, and the horned Dorset is one of the most rare. So the horned Dorset is actually more rare than the Tunis at this point, um, and the Tunis itself is fairly rare. So when they, you know, got to the point where they were trying to uh, ship animals longer distances, one theory that's been presented to me is it was around the, the uh, time of the railroads. So when they wanted to start to pack a lot of lambs onto a railroad car and ship them a distance, the horns of, of one animal would damage the meat of another. Right. And so they, they started developing polled breeds. So, yeah, Pol- it's, polled, it's rare. Polled breeds is a breed that has no horns. Right. And it, how do you spell that? P-O-L-L-E-D. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, I'm like losing my train of thought. I'm like, oh, I have like so many questions swimming around in my head. That's right. um, but I'm thinking about, okay, so thinking about, I want to kind of stay on this genetic track. And um, so you're working with uh, rare breeds. Both breeds are recognized by the, you know, Livestock Breed Conservancy, of which I know that you're a member. Great right. organization that kind of um, tracks and does record keeping for, um, rare and heritage breeds of animals, but also offers kind of education services and kind of documentation. Um, When you're thinking about your breeding stock um, and you're working with an animal that has all these different types of uses, how do you kind of like make decisions about what animals to, to like breed back to keep in your, in your farm? Like what are the like, archetype characteristics that you're looking for and and how has that like maybe changed over the the time that you've been working with the flock yeah so some things on our flock i feel like are in pretty good shape and i don't need to discriminate between animals on quite so much as i might have needed to when we started Um, an example of that would be confirmation so our animals have pretty good confirmation their body shape is about what it should be um, something you often see in sheep is a uneven back line, for example. And that's just indicative of an animal that's not going to produce well and hold up over the long haul. So there, there are virtually no um, animals in our flock that have an uneven back line at this point. I'm going to jump in here on two things. One, yeah. confirmation, you're basically talking about like the the physical structure of the animal. So yep. like the meat to bone ratio, the size of the like loins, the way that the animal kind of dresses out, that's kind of what's encompassing confirmation or are there other pieces? Well, I would describe confirmation more as the structure of the skeleton of the animal. Okay. So does it have, um, you know, does it have short front legs and tall rear legs? Does it have a straight spine along its back or is it curved? 
Um, does it have uh, wide enough rear legs so that the udder isn't pushed up against the legs and so that delivery of lambs is relatively easy? Does it have a small enough head so that its offspring will have a small head so that, that when it's giving birth, the offspring will be able to come out smoothly? So um, carcass um, characteristics are certainly related, right. but I'd say they're just a little bit different. Piece yeah. of that. Um, and w- I've had a guest on... Um, John Wilkes in the past who's done quite a bit of work in the sheep and lamb industry internationally and he has kind of the uh, distinction of having al- given ultrasounds to like I don't know something crazy like 40,000 yeah. you know sheep um, and so they he, he's used ultrasound technology a lot to kind of determine kind of that that kind of confirmation and like how how animals are, are growing and developing and thinking about how do you standardize um, procedures for harvest and and so you're getting like you know if you're a chef you want all your loin racks to look really similar that right. kind of thing um, do you, what are the kind of tools that you use other than your eyes to like because I you know I can imagine after a certain number of years you can kind of look at a sheep and be like oh the back legs are a little bit longer they've got wide hips the same way you like look at a person. Um, but are, are there other tools that you're using to evaluate some of those things? Yeah. So first to sort of jump back to your previous question and and then, then I'll talk about the carcass characteristics a little bit. So the, the things that we're evaluating and tracking in our animals are the rate at which they twin. So there we, and we express that as a percentage. So if, uh, if a, you, has a, a single lamb every year, then her average is 100%. If she has two lambs every year, 200%. And and the higher number, obviously, is better for the farm because you're producing more lambs, which are your crop, and you have a greater group of lambs to choose from when you're selecting your breeding animals. So that would be one thing, twinning ratio. And then uh, growth rate's very important to us. And then longevity is important to us as well because we, we want the brood animals to last a good long time. So that's kind of how we evaluate and make decisions about which animals to keep, both in terms of which animals need to be culled from the brood flock and which animals need to be recruited. So if a ewe has gone from twinning, twinning, twinning to two or three singles, it's time for her to be culled and removed from the flock. If, on the other hand, we're trying to decide between several female lambs to retain, to integrate into the brood flock, we'll want to select ones whose parents have a history of twinning, and both on the paternal and the maternal side, so we're tracking that information. Um, in terms of carcass characteristics, I mean, that's something that we are learning more about all the time, and it was not a focus of ours early on. Because because we have the breeds we have, and because we want to maintain them, and because some of our customers like Heritage Foods USA really value that, we're going to keep breeding those animals pure. And as a result, we will probably never produce as large, for example, as large a loin as you might with a more commercial breed. If, for example, if you had a, um, you know, if you had a Texel and you crossed a Suffolk onto it, you're going to get a much meatier lamb that's going to be bigger. It's going to grow faster. It's going to have a larger loin eye. So we will, we will probably, um, we're getting really good feedback about our carcasses, but we will probably never try to compete with that type of product. There's also in the commercial lamb market, they're using breeds that are just much larger framed, much larger skeletons, much larger breeds overall, and they're growing them as they do with cattle in the West. You know, they're growing the skeleton of the animal on the range with grass, and then they're bringing them into feedlots and feeding 
really high amounts of grain so that you have this big somebody described it to me once as a coat hanger the skeleton being mm-hmm. sort of like a coat hanger and you grow this big coat hanger and then you bring it into the feedlot and, and you put all this grain into it and put a big coat on that coat hanger and as a result you buy a colorado lamb as a chef you're probably going to get a much bigger carcass and it's going to be an older animal and a larger carcass and that may be just what you want and it may right. not right so there's kind of you're making I, I'm, I feel like I'm always fascinated at the moment you like start to tuck into this stuff, like how many just like factors there are to yeah. one, get educated about, to be paying attention to, um, and, you know, looking at this type of a business infrastructure, like, man, I have to like be good at so many things. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's by far, I've, I've done a few things that, um, that were challenging and been involved in the startups of several businesses and done a number of things that people said either couldn't be done or couldn't be done as fast as I did them. And nothing has humbled me the way farming has. It's, it's absolutely the most uh, complex thing I've ever tried to do. And there are just numerous things to learn about and numerous ways to fail. And, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's humbling. <laughs> like I'm trying, yeah. I, I feel that way often with, uh, with like different kind of jobs or tasks that I've had where I'm like, all right, well, like once I've made all the mistakes, then yeah. like I'm going to be in a <laughs> good spot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, well, we are going to kind of continue talking about some of these uh, challenges and learn a little bit more about your operation, but we're going to take just a short break here to hear a word from our sponsor. So hang tight, guys. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we will be right back. And this one is Relax. It's just the end of the world by Taxstar. We'll be right back. EscapeMaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Or come by EscapeMaker's Blue Tent and Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Markets' own farmers and producers. Have you listened to On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio? EscapeMaker has teamed up with Heritage Radio to design a vacation package that provides a first-hand experience of the local flavors from some of New York's best craft beverage producers. Listen in and book your trip at escapemaker.com slash heritage radio. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. All right, we are back. Uh, we are in studio with Ben Machen of Tamarack, Vermont Sheep Farm. If you want to learn more about their operation, you can visit. They have a great website, www.tamarackvermontsheepfarm.com. Actually, that's not right. It's tamarackvermont.com, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I added the other thing in there. Um, they also um, have a sister website called uh, vermontheritagewool.com if you want to pick up some of the, the beautiful comforters and blankets and um i think occasionally you guys have sheepskins as well i know i have we a do. sheepskin from you yep yep um, so um b- before the break we were talking a lot uh, about um the breeds that you're working with and the kind of confirmation and 
what I want to touch on for just a moment here is the the fiber aspect of running a lamb and sheep operation. Um, do you do you do you have to shear sheep? Can you like avoid that process, or like if you have sheep, you're going through a shearing process, and like that's there's no way around that. The short answer is it all depends on the breed, okay. and there are a couple of sheep breeds that are what they call hair sheep. So Katahdins are one example, yep. and Dorpers are another. And so they grow hair that they shed every spring. And so in the summer, they're looking their hide is looking more like a goat's, and in the winter, they they uh, fluff up a little bit more like a sheep, although they never have a full fleece like a like a like a wool breed. But the vast majority of of sheep are wool breeds, and uh, both of the breeds that we have are wool breeds. We have a few Dorpers in the flock just for fun, and they they um, they don't get sheared, but all the other sheep do get sheared and it's it's a so it's an annual thing for us and we do it um, right around the time when the ewes are lambing depending on the weather because Mm -hmm. we're in vermont and we will lamb sometimes we'll lamb in february or march and it can be you know 20 below zero and still too cold still too cold so we try to just pay attention to weather and make a decision each year depending on what the weather patterns have been like and now i know there's folks who like make their living kind of traveling the country shearing sheep is that do you do you work with someone do you do that on farm like um what's that process look like how long does it take yeah, we have a wonderful shearer, Gwen Hinman, who we absolutely love, and she does our shearing every year. She comes for two days, and she shears about 300 sheep. Gwen can do them incredibly fast. Um, it's really it's about technique. It's definitely not a brute force game, at least the way she pursues it. She Gwen, I'd be amazed if Gwen was a 110 pounds, and it's really amazing to watch her work the animals into the right positions in order to be able to shear them efficiently. And some of our sheep are relatively big. You know, we have ewes that are well over 200 pounds. So she can shear a sheep, I think, in a couple minutes when she's really in a groove. Um, the The value of the wool is fairly low, so it's sort of just something that has to be done unless you're creating a value-added product with it. Just to put some numbers to that, I think Gwen shearing is about $4 a sheep, and the wool is worth maybe a dollar fifty or $2. So it, it costs more to remove it than the material is worth. Okay. So, and when you're shearing a sheep, um, you know, basically, can I think of it like getting a buzz cut where you're just like, or is it, is it different than that? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's more like a, um, like a beard trimmer. Yeah. Okay. It's, and you end up with maybe, um, I don't know, maybe an eighth of an inch of, of wool on the sheep and. So at that point in the year, they might have like three and a half or four inches of wool on them. And if you, you know, you remember back to your high school geometry class and the volume of a cylinder, you know, when you take that three or four inches off the outside of the animal, you're losing half of the total mass of the right. animal. So you, you quickly understand where the expression uh, getting fleeced comes from. You're right. like, God, I had such big sheep. <laughs> and they get sheared and you're, you've been like, fleeced. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, yeah. So when I buy, like the, so like the sheep skin that I have at my home, that has been harvested when you slaughter an animal because, because right. it has the skin attached. Yep, right. okay. that's right. Yeah, so those are usually their lamb skins, but not always. So sometimes okay. you might get a larger skin from a, a cold ewe or a, cold, or a ram that's been retired. Um, but but by and large, those are lamb skins. So you indicated, obviously, there's kind of the financial realities of the, the value of the wool. 
um, which it kind of goes back to that breed question where you're looking at kind of what are these breeds known for, and obviously it's not the well. So what do you what do you like do with it? I mean, does it become a waste disposal process, and you like pull some of the like nicer ones and and put them into the like woolen business, or is there kind of a commodity market that you just show up and they're like, yep, we'll give you a dollar bail, or how does how do you kind of like handle the the wool after it's been sheared from the sheep. Yeah, so there's a real lack of uh, critical mass in in wool production in eastern U.S. and probably in the U.S. as a whole, but certainly in the eastern U.S. So without a critical mass of raw material, there ha- isn't much of a market. And there are some wool pools, they're called, where a bunch of different farmers will bring their wool together and then a wool buyer will come and, and purchase them. And it takes a fair amount of time to be involved in one of those and the return isn't that great. So a lot of farmers don't don't bother. A lot of them sell the wool to their shearer, mm-hmm. um, or she'll take Gwen will take the wool and offer us a discount for you know half the value of the shearing or something. Um, but in our case, we take the the best wool and we turn it into a line of wool and products. And the two main things that we're doing are blankets and wool comforters. And the so the the wool is is clean is cleaned and and uh, washed and turned into yarn and then woven into blankets. And on the other hand, with the comforters, it's cleaned and washed, and then uh, it's a process called carding where the wool sort of goes through a mill with all these tiny wire arms that fluff it and clean it and create sort of a bat like mm-hmm. someone would use inside of a quilt or that you might find inside of a jacket, you know, sort of a bat that then gets covered. And um, those are those are great products. Though You know, wool has a, a lot of amazing properties and we use we use them all the time and and love them yeah i've been thinking so we have a new show on the heritage radio network that i definitely recommend if you're into a lot of the topics we talk about on the farm report you should check out it's called magnifico it's all about um sustainability in the fashion industry so one of the things that um kate covers the host kate black is is looking at the fiber industry is looking at the clothing industry and textile industry and what is the impact of those? Um, what are the waste streams from those? Like, how does the production work? How do we, in the same way we think about being responsible food buyers, how do how does that translate to like the clothing in our life or the textiles in our life? And it's 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 been super interesting to kind of learn more about that. And there's so many parallels. Um, and I've been thinking a lot personally about um, how do I like put my money where my mouth is when it comes to my like fashion and textile consumption. Um, and it's so weird. Like the, one of the things that, um, is, it, it's cost is cost to like the end, end consumer. Like it, it just costs a lot more to buy nice, sustainably made stuff. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt about that. There was a great piece on NPR as I was driving down this morning about, Clothing manufacturing in Vietnam and just the you know the cost of labor and the lack of environmental regulations and uh, the the way that taxation systems are set up in the two countries really favors the cheap production of material over there and and us us purchasing it and it was a real eye opener for us to go through the process of having these products made. Um, we use a couple of different artisans at different stages to produce the different pieces of it because we don't have the skill or equipment to do all of it ourselves. And, uh, yeah, the cost just adds up really quickly when you're paying American wages and, and, um, 
you know, trying to do it right. Trying to do it right. And uh, well, one of the interesting things that I learned from one of Kate's early episodes was, you know, there's this idea that because clothing has become so much more inexpensive than it has been historically, that we as consumers are really, you know, we're driven by price. We want to buy like cheaper things um, so we can save money. But the, the weird thing is we actually are just buying tons more stuff. Right. Um, so, so I think the statistic was something crazy. It was like women today have eight times more cl- pieces of clothing in their closet than they did in the 80s. So instead of buying the one, you know, $160 shirt, we've got, you know, yeah. eight $20 shirts, six of which we don't wear. Um, so right. I think, you know, a lot, I feel like a lot of girlfriends in my life have been really reassessing their, um, buying choices and doing the kind of Marie Kondoing. Yeah, you know, she's like the amazing right. kind of Japanese um, tidying expert. Uh, uh, as, as far as really looking critically at their wardrobe, right? Um, and and being kind of shocked by when you go through it and you start putting stuff that you don't use or you don't wear in bags, like how quickly that adds up. And then when you start to translate that into just the money that you've spent, it's it's it kind of wild. And I feel like it's often very motivating for me to like. In the same way, I try to with my food is like buy fewer, nicer things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I hope that as a culture, we've <clears throat> gone through a period of having so much inexpensive stuff, whether it's you know electronics or whether it's clothes or whether it's food, that um, was extremely exciting to us because it was all available. But I'm hoping that we're going through that that wave and realizing that that doesn't translate to a better quality of life or happiness and that, uh, you know, less is more certainly seems like you're starting to see more of that in, you know, house and interior design where there's more sparse, uh, things are more clean. Um, the value of, especially with all the sort of, um, electronic gadgets that we have ourselves hooked to just the value of, um, clean space and a clean slate it's such a rare thing to be able to find the way our culture has evolved that I'm kind of hoping that'll be a trend a little bit of like a backlash well um on that kind of conservation note I, I think it's good for us to point out that um even you know we've touched on a lot of different aspects of the farming business but that is not like you know that's like one of the ways in which you and your family make a living right. you still work with the forestry business you do a lot of work around um, kind of conservation and sustainability, looking at how people are using and interacting with the land and obviously taking those like skills and that approach and um, applying it to the property that you guys own. Right. And so we've got a couple of minutes left here, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what are your kind of, what are you kind of working on right now with regards to land management for your property? Like what are kind of the challenges and opportunities and kind of short and long-term goals um, for you on the farm? Yeah, so we do a lot of recycling of nutrients. Uh, In particular, anything that gets fed to the animals obviously results in manure. That manure, because of the system that we use in our barns, is called a bedded pack system. So the manure layers in the barn with dry hay. So we're always adding dry hay on top or wood chips so that the animals have a nice dry place to be bedded in the winter. And yet that's all getting integrated with manure throughout the winter. And so we're not cleaning it out every day. It's building up. It could be several feet deep by the spring. So we'll take all that out in in the spring, and we make a long windrow of it, sort of a series of of, uh, piles all in a long row with a dump truck. And we let that rot down, and we'll manage it with a tractor. And 
refolded into itself until it composts down really well. And so we're getting a really nice um, product that we can use to fertilize our fields. And that's the main way that we fertilize our fields at the home farm. We also lease a number of different properties around town, and we use a variety of different fertilization techniques depending on what the field needs. And every field is tested um, every year to help us figure out what it needs in the way of amendments. And we're, it's, a, it's been a passion of mine, equal to my passion for the animals, growing beautiful grass and restoring fields that have been abandoned. And I'm proud of what we've been able to do in that respect. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, um, too, do you have a sense of, like, how Vermont stacks up regionally with regards to resources in that area? I know if you're, like, looking to uh, restore grasslands or marshlands or, like, what are the um, things that you can look to from an education standpoint or potentially funding or tax abatement? Are those, like, mm-hmm. does that type of infrastructure exist for that stuff? Or Yeah, that's a really great question. In a, in a big in a big subject, really, but I, I think there's a lot of good information in Vermont. There are a number of organizations that are very helpful. The University of Vermont Extension is good. There's a pasture network that's very good. There's the Organic Farmers Association, and there and there are there's a sheep and goat association as well. There are a lot of different organizations that have information and host pasture walks where you can go to different farms and see how they're managing things and get ideas. And there's a couple of major workshops a year where you can go and learn more and those those are all are all helpful for sure in terms of funding there there isn't a lot unless you happen to have a water quality issue on your property or mm-hmm. the property that you're managing and if you do then there's federal funding available to that you have to apply for and is competitive but if you have a water quality concern you generally do get funded to deal with it and the the uh, to sort of make that less conceptual and more specific if you have animals that are grazing next to a stream for example and the manure is able to get into the stream that's that's not ideal and so the federal funding would help to support the installation of fence and then the development of an alternative water source so that the animals aren't in the stream and yet they still have water and you can rotationally graze them through the fields maybe the way you want to so it kind of it, there isn't there isn't funding available to just restore land right. unless you happen to have uh, some other adverse impact. The going water, on. yeah. I mean, I know that's something that we think about a lot here in New York State because of where our you know our watershed and where the water supply for the city right. comes from. It's kind of interesting, and we'll probably hear more about that through throughout the season because uh, Charlie, my co-host, spent a long time working for the the watershed council. So I, I, that that oh, I feel cool. like that like kind of. Um, looking at pr- protecting the watershed and the the way that agriculture impact, impacts land, impacts climate is something that we'll be touching on. It's something I feel like we're hearing about a lot more in the news. Right. And it, often I find the reporting to be incredibly confusing. Right. Um, and and the pr- presentation of stuff like ends up being super black and white in a way that I don't think is particularly helpful for folks. So. Right. You could say that of a lot of media in this day and age. And- <laughs> It certainly seems like in Vermont, we were having our big water quality issue is Lake Champlain that's getting the most attention sort of at the state level and regionally. And there's a trade-off there because one of the main source of pollutants is agriculture. And so there's a a decision that our culture needs to to make about um, where the line is between water quality, the importance of water quality, and the importance of growing food. 
And I think that there's a way to do that gracefully, but it isn't helped by people that are trying to paint it in a black and white way because it is, it is complex, I think. Yeah. And something that we'll continue to explore. Well, sadly we are out of time, but Ben, we will have to have you come back next time. Next time you're down in the city making a delivery for heritage, we can make this like a, a, a regular thing. I would love to. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. I know, folks, obviously, if you want to try some of the delicious lamb that Ben raises, you can find it on the Heritage Foods website, which is heritagefoodsusa.com. You can learn more about um, the the farm by visiting tamrackvermont.com and uh, get information on the meat there, also links to some of the fiber stuff. Anywhere else that you would point folks if they want to kind of find uh, your products or more about you guys? or No, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you once again. You've made your way through another farm report. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some great shows coming up for you later this month. Um, definitely check out Magnifico, uh, the show I was mentioning earlier, um, hosted by Kate Black. It's an awesome kind of entree into the, the fashion and textile world. Um, and is available for free. Like all 35 of our weekly programs, we are a member-supported nonprofit radio station. So if you believe that it's important to have conversations like this out there for people to learn and to grow their knowledge, please consider becoming a member. You can do that by visiting the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that being heart and uh, toss us a couple bucks. Um, would love to hear more from you, what you guys want to hear more of you can leave a review on the website you can leave a review via itunes um definitely helps uh us know kind of that you're out there that you're listening um hi mom (laughs) thanks again guys (laughs) stay tuned in uh we'll catch you next week Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.